everyone, and welcome to a brand new episode of the Jams Tea Podcast. We spin the jams, spill the tea, and this is a new record club episode where each week we talk about a new record that we haven't reviewed before. And today we're talking about another one of the albums that we're adding to our 2023 list where we cover them on their 10th anniversary because they're 10 years old and we feel ancient. And this week we're going to be talking about a monolithic album, not just in terms of what it means to us, but to the world of music and the world of metal. We're talking about Death Heaven's Sunbather. Oh, yes. And boy, this album turned 10 the week we record this. And I have been waiting. You have to believe me. I've been waiting every single one of those, every single day of those 10 years to express how this album makes me feel in a public forum. I discovered this album the week it came out, I think within days of when it came out, because there was a lot of hype surrounding it. This was around the time when I was sort of just getting into music sort of seriously in terms of like, you know, reading blogs, reading Pitchfork, reading all kinds of like, you know, musical digest forums and stuff and really kind of just inhaling music uh, and new music specifically. And so this album had a groundswell of buzz surrounding it. And I'll go in a little bit more to my kind of personal context in a bit. I don't want to spend too much time on that because the album itself is what we're here to review. But if you know anything about this album, and certainly if you have, if you were aware of this album around the time when it came out, or just aware of alternative music discourse in general around the time this album came out, you'll know that this was one of the most critically beloved albums of 2013, one of the most listened to albums of 2013 within, I guess, alternative music circles. It was a real watershed moment for metal and alternative music circles as well, because with cultural forces such as Pitchfork, for instance, it's not as though they were dismissive of metal, but the kind of music that they covered and the kind of culture that they essentially represented an umbrella for didn't often dip into metal all that much, typically tended to revolve around things that were outside of the world of extreme music. But Deaf Heaven's Sunbather broke through. This was one of those albums that people who weren't all that into metal in 2013 listened to and loved. And it's an album that... And a lot of the things that it does that are quite musically transgressive, not necessarily original, but certainly breaking the mold and having a certain success with that mold breaking that a lot of bands prior to them hadn't had, it generated a lot of discourse. I mean, thank God this didn't come out today, because if you can imagine the level of discourse that this that this album generated in 2013, if you transpose that to 2023, it would be apocalyptic. It would create a black hole just sucking in matter surrounding this album. But it, as it was, the discourse surrounding this album in 2013 was already kind of unbearable. I mean, for people who were fans of the record, it, it felt like it was difficult to express what we loved about the record and why we loved it without being kind of painted with a particular brush of, oh, you're just a, a noob to metal. You don't know what real black metal is. You know, this is kind of, this is watered down, you know, yada, yada. <laughs> there was a lot of backlash towards even from metal purists. And, you know, that's nothing new. This is the thing as well, is because the particular brand of metal that Deaf Heaven have and have worked with for many years obviously takes a lot from black metal, obviously takes a lot from a particular tradition of, of metal that is known for being very gatekeepy, for being very particular, and for being very staunchly traditional in a certain sense, where it's like, 
black metal has an aesthetic and this is what black metal sounds like and we don't fuck with the formula that much now to be fair and to be clear black metal had been fucked with a lot by the time of 2013 and by the time that death heaven sunbather represented the kind of crowning ascension of black gaze that being the fusion of black metal and shoegaze that many bands had flirted with in the decades leading up to this album you know we've talked about bands in the past that take a that uh, that death heaven owe a very clear debt to bands like alsay and agalock for instance who have always been on the more kind of atmospheric side of black metal but have kind of melded shoegaze and even pop punk influences into that sound death heaven i think took that fusion took that kind of idea of the atmospheric side of black metal the base sort of aesthetics of black metal infusing them with shoegaze guitars fusing them with kind of radiant brighter chords um, major keys and melodies that evoke feelings of euphoria and triumph as opposed to pure despondence now it's really easy to box Death Heaven in. It's actually kind of complex to accurately describe what their particular fusion is. I mean, they are a more multifaceted band than I think they were initially given credit for. And a lot of the discourse surrounding trying to describe them and sell them to people in 2013 ultimately ended up reducing a lot of what they did. Because it, it's a weird fusion of, of eclectic influences from vastly different places, right? And while Death Heaven, as I would say, and, and because I know if I didn't say this, people would be in the comments reminding me, while Death Heaven were not the first to work with this particular fusion of black metal and shoegaze, particularly in terms of embracing these more radiant, bright sounding songs, what made Death Heaven cut through and be so and be such a crossover success, I think, is how much clarity and how much immediacy they bring to the compositions themselves, all right? These are songs that hit you in the face, that knock you back, and that will blow you away. That's what their goal is, and if you take away one thing from the experience of listening to Sunbather, it should be that immediacy, that impact of these songs. Did he even also bring a sharpness to the melodic writing of this album? A really instantaneous kick to the melodies of this album, a simplistic and straightforward aesthetic that belies a more complicated and multifaceted underlying interior. All that is to say, pretty metal go burr. Like it, it's a beautiful album that in its intensity and its rawness and in how clearly and confidently it melds all of these different influences that it brings together, it just became impossible to ignore at the particular juncture where it arrived. And it was a gateway record into different forms of metal and into extreme metal for a lot of people, myself included. I want to hear from you guys now just what your thoughts are on this album overall, what your experience was like discovering it for the first time, and what you think makes Death Heaven so unique and attractive to such a wide audience of people who might not typically uh, listen to all that much heavy metal. Yeah, there are a number of answers to that question, which sort of falls into how traditionally elusive pinning down this band is. My answer is that Deaf Heaven is an emo band before they were before they are anything first. I'm I'm so glad you said this first because I was totally gonna say it. I mean, let's just look at Dreamhouse for a second. After the gnarly ascending riff that starts the song out, the the core rhythm of it is this D to F sharp to G progression that is like so wholly indicative of 
Jimmy Eat World. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I don't know if anybody's made a mashup of Dream House in the middle of Wasted Opportunity if they haven't. Uh, lyrically, there's much to be said for the confluence of influences. But really, I think what gets overshadowed so often in the black metal, black gaze, not true cult, the, the uh, death fell off after leprosy type of conversations <laughs> that you get from albums like these uh, and this band in general, what gets lost in that is the fact that melody is utterly tantamount to the identity of this band first and foremost when uh the genre of black metal and the genre of shoegaze both have a tendency to rely on a melodic sonic choices and I, I mean to put it to put it as simply as i can i think it's the sort of the attitude and disposition and particularly in the guitar work, the playing style of traditional black metal infused with proper melody and enough reverb to make Kevin Shields, you know, flinch. Yeah, you you make a good point. It's like, you know, black metal and shoegaze, for all their differences, are both styles of music that play heavily on kind of atmospherics and are quite monotonous and tend to be kind of more about tone and impact than any kind of like kind of complex compositional style. That's not to reduce them. That's not to say that artists who work in black metal and shoegaze aren't good at composing and don't take a compositional approach, but just that the general aesthetics, you know, if we're talking about, you know, if you want to take a loveless and, you know, blaze in the Northern sky as being representative of those two styles, then, you know, that's the kind of chief, way i would describe those things is it's about the impact it's about the effect it's about the the atmosphere it's about it's not about anything all that particularly complex but what's the genius of death heaven is that they recognize and again i'm not saying that those two styles are necessarily lesser we love plenty of black men and we love plenty of shoegaze here but what death heaven recognize is that there's only so far that you can kind of take those things aesthetically in terms of fleshing out a full sound but what death heaven do is they take them for those textural elements they take them for those atmospheric and emotional timbres that they bring and then they place on top of them as morgan was saying the tenets of a genre like pop punk or like a lot of late 90s, early 2000s emo rock music, right? And recognize that that can be the kind of central foundation of the songs themselves, of, you know, the melodies, of what the songs are about, the the chief kind of focus. And the black metal and shoegaze stuff can be the coloring that kind of fills that in, so to speak. And that's what makes uh, Sunbather so satisfying is that you get... And you can recognize a lot of those aesthetics of black metal and shoegaze that you know and love, but you also get them infused with a particular style of 2000s, you know, very bleeding heart melodramatic rock music that belongs so that fits so beautifully between those two styles. I feel like the most underrated part of Sunbather. Really, I guess um, underrated isn't right. It's just something that becomes difficult to acknowledge because the enormity of the sound and of the experience is so crushing, flattening, overwhelming that it takes a while to kind of isolate and identify elements of music that you can traditionally be like, oh, this thing is causing this. And this is, it, it's just, it's difficult with the the storm that is this album's production. It is 
cleaner than a lot of black metal and hell than a lot of shoegaze but it still blends everything together into this kind of semi-incomprehensible wall that said there are at least from what i can observe within this very specific sound there are subtle elements of counterpoint that exist simultaneously in any given moment throughout the entirety of Sunbather that create a dynamism that is constantly in flux. There's the wall of black metal and shoegaze guitars that is constantly cascading down as you are listening to this album. But the band is conscious of the fact that that isn't going to sustain a song itself. Maybe they're going to introduce a very melodic guitar phrasing that's going to come in and kind of guide you through the storm, as it were. Or they'll just kind of wait and space things out on the post-rockier bits of here and then give you a line when you feel like you're stranded out at sea. And even within the band's rhythm section, like, which... I don't know about you guys. We haven't exactly discussed this beforehand, but at least if I had to isolate what the most underrated aspect of Sunbather is, it's the fucking drumming. Because, like, you hone in on that, and these fills are insane shit. I mean, like, I've been saying for years, Daniel Tracy is one of the best drummers working in middle stop every single time he's on one of their, I mean, every single album that he's on. He's just doing absolutely absurd shit. Even when the, the black metal stylings are dropped on the most recent record, Infinite Granite, he's still just bringing a black metal drumming style to that album, which makes it so and, and that might be, ridiculous. That might be his best work to me. Yeah. And you feel that being accentuated in a way that a lot of the times the drumming can kind of get lost in the cacophony of these styles of music or, again, creates a sort of timbral texture that is meant to be kind of absorbed rather than isolated but when you have it and when this band hone in on the drums somehow they're able to make a kind of rhythmic counterpoint to that with something like a more full-bodied bass line or something and the way that these two things interact often create a kind of feeling like you're being pinballed through this there are always ideas that guide you through the enormity of these songs and when you tie that kind of musical expertise to the fact that these guys really know how to tell an emotional narrative through music you get an experience that feels titanic but you also get the feeling of how small you are and how wide and winding this journey they are leads you on and when you couple that with a kind of emotional tangibility that isn't often super common in stuff like this which is why i think the emo comp is so apt uh because it feels like the the emo bands that were blending emo music with post-rock at the time that uh this came out in 2013 for instance like the world is a beautiful place and i'm no longer afraid to die for instance but uh that though these elements just constantly the musicianship is so excellent and the actual thoughtful construction of the record is so front and center that it it feels like a lot of this can be lost in the minutia of just shoegaze, black metal, big and loud. Well, and here's the thing, right, is I think the reason why it's so difficult to escape the discussion of genre when talking about this album is not necessarily just that people are genre snobs, 
but also because do you even make it the, the make the genre fusion the core like they make it inescapable every almost every yeah. second of this album apart from the small kind of quieter sections and breakdowns within these bigger tracks you're almost constantly hearing two different aesthetics from two different worlds of music being thrown together and that dynamism that you spoke of, Jake, becomes the defining characteristic of the listening experience of Sunbather. You are hearing almost constantly those tremolo-picked guitars that are so black metal, the blast beats. I mean, Daniel Tracy just goes blast beat fucking crazy all over this thing. But you're also getting those radiant, pretty chords, and you're also getting you know, this kind of core melodic sensibility that feels much more attuned to pop music. Uh, but then again, that brushing up against George Clark's vocal style on this album, which is very like 90s black metal style, like very kind of traditional black metal style. And that's one of the other interesting dynamics of this album that really, because when this album came out, and I'm sure in the years since, one of the defining aspects of the conversation around it was whether people could even get into it in the first place, because it became so quickly yeah. positioned as, you know, this is an album for people who are not super into metal to kind of get them through the gate. And often in those discussions, the biggest sort of stopping point that stopped people from being able to fully get on board was the vocals because they are so yeah. aggressively black metal. They are so, there's this raspy sort of, not even full throated, but just this kind of like top of the throat, just sort of like screaming, sort of scraping sound. It's a snarl. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, it, it's classic black metal vocal stylings. Yeah. Not at all dissimilar from like, you know, Dark Throne or mm. Mayhem or what have you. It's, I mean, it's direct invocation of those bands, particularly the classic kind of black metal, like what you think of when somebody just says the genre word to you. Yeah. And that's what made Def Even so commanding, right? Was that they were actively kind of provoking by putting these opposite extremes right next to each other this extreme classical black metal vocal style against this gorgeously pretty bed of beautiful sounds that makes the dissonance between those things so apparent and for a lot of people so off-putting as well and i think for a lot of the genre purists as well it was like the daringness the gall of that was one of the things that really kind of provoked them as well but it's the genius of Death Heaven is the way that they make these extremes being pushed against each other not necessarily feel natural, because I don't think I think that would be too much of a stretch, but ultimately feel very appealing and feel very satisfying once you kind of get your head around the style they're adopting on this record. You know, and today in 2023, I don't I can't imagine that to new audiences, Sunbather plays all that, you know, provocatively or surprisingly. So much metal now is taken from Sunbather. But at the time, you know, and again, not saying there were other bands doing this, but at the time, it felt genuinely awe-inspiring and bizarre and just completely impossible to ignore because of how different it was. You know, I've talked about Elsay and Agalock, and I think there's definitely a train of influence there. But honestly, the band I think of the most when I listen to this is Envy. Like particularly that screaming yeah. style pushed up against that really hardcore influenced sound. Uh, I, I think of Envy a lot while listening to this because Envy obviously take a lot from post rock as well, and that's another mm -hmm. throwing genres around. That's another genre Def even clearly take a lot from, particularly bands like Godspeed You, Black Emperor. I would oh, say yeah. biggest post rock influence on this record, and so that concoction. Of influences is irresistible was irresistible to music journalists in 2013 and soon became fascinating to audiences so okay 
we've talked a lot about the, the album generally. Let's get into the the these the, the music itself. I mean, Dreamhouse came out, I think, earlier in 2013 as the lead single. I didn't hear it until I listened to the album. I mean, this is maybe I would say inarguably the greatest black gay song, like great in terms of like its influence, its recognition, you know, how stunning it is compositionally, how deceptively simple it is, but how incredibly emotionally impactful it is as well. I mean, from out the gate, the album just, it demands your attention with the urgency of the way these chords are laid down with how the tremolos used with the, the blast beats, every element of what makes Deaf Heaven Deaf Heaven is laid out clearer for you. And in the context of a piece of music that makes you, it makes the listener feel like there's a sense of urgency here, like this is life or death right here, right now from the jump. I mean, what, what, how does this song make you guys feel? And what do you think of this track? What does this make you feel like you think I can pinpoint one emotion to describe my reaction to dream house? Uh, oh god you know i i feel like we'll both and or not both all three of us will probably inevitably go into the fact that i feel like more than a lot of some of our favorite records you really really remember at least if you connect with it anyway you really remember the first time you listened to this album. Like, no matter when it happened, no matter where it happened, how mundane or extraordinary those circumstances may be, you remember exactly where you are. And I can remember the first time I heard this in its totality in 2020, back when it was a couple months after we had started the podcast even, and I was sitting in my bed in my room and I just threw this on because I was just like, you know, I've listened to a little bit of this in the past, but I've never actually did a dedicated full listen. And I like black gays so much that like, what what is wrong with me? What am I doing? What's happening here? So I just threw this on and yeah, you're immediately overwhelmed by just the scale of the song, but it's that moment where the main guitar phrase in this song just kind of breaks through the fog of the rest of it that you really do feel like something has leaped out of your headphones and grabbed you by the shirt and pulls you forward and is just like you are going to feel some shit for the next hour and reader i felt some shit for the next hour that that guitar phrase like we we talk a lot about how this album tonally despite being like unmistakably of black metal and of these genres that are very traditionally associated with being dark murky all that stuff with how bright this album is i mean from the album cover alone like look at just the the sort of pink haze of it and look at the way that the title is arranged in these neat stylized but like serif letters on there and it's like this aesthetically is everything that black metal has never been it's never been bright never been saturated with color and it's never been this thing that's easy to identify or or isolate those black metal logos are just like this fucking mess of what looks like scar tissue and it's unreadable and then you have this, and I feel like that's kind of a mission statement for what this is, because the moment you can identify and lock onto something tangible about this, you're immediately feeling the emotion that the band wants you to feel. And that triumphant, ascending phrase of guitar, oh my god, 
very bizarre connection I'm making here. It's kind of like how when you listen to like some of the first few Animal Collective albums and you listen to those and you're just kind of like, this feels like more of a vibes experience than it does like a directly lyrical one. And then you look into the lyrics and you're like, oh shit, I was wrong. <laughs> and I feel like you can easily mistake that about Sunbather as well is because it's, it is difficult to kind of make out everything in, you know, the, the, the wide array of what's going on here. But if you listen carefully, I do really feel like the actual vocal presence on here of George Clark is very legible. You just have to hone in on it. But like, even then, it's very difficult to mistake the final line of this song. That snarled, raspy scream of I want to dream. In the 10 years since it comes out, there have maybe been a handful of things that make me feel the, the height of emotion that clearly the lyrics on here in general across the album are super potent but on here specifically the second sort of stanza in this song that pour of a bitter red being that escapes a thin frame the rebirth of mutual love the slipping on gloves to lay tenderly i'm dying is it blissful it's like a dream i want to dream and if that isn't the most emo shit you've ever heard in your life but also just god what a visceral image that it paints for you just right off the bat it's it's so angular in a way that the rest of this album isn't that you're just kind of forced to pay attention and feel that and i, I like my introduction to black gaze is always going to be i'll say kodama like that's that's going to be a pivotal album for me forever but in terms of what music speaks to me, Sunbather's kind of unparalleled, and I'd be lying if I said that isn't like at least, not to diminish the other songs on here, but that's like 95% because of Dreamhouse. The album cover, I think, is the first provocation, right? Like it's the first provocation the album makes. It's it's suggests, and again, if you with if you have context and you have con if you don't have context, you'll have a different experience from looking at it. But knowing that you're going to be getting essentially a record that heavily trades in extreme forms of metal, but brings that into this world of kind of shoegaze and emo and pop music, you know that album cover is iconic, right? And and it's deliberately selected to evoke the uh, visual sensation of staring at the sun with your eyes closed and the kind of like the 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 sunlight through skin, and it gets at a theme of the record that. And here's another one of the ways in which the album has become a little bit of a whipping post, right? An easy record to mock because there's a lot of purple prose on this album, I guess I'll call it. You know, it's a record that's written very melodramatically and it's a record that leans so far into that particular kind of almost teenage uh, sort of glorified melodrama that it can be a little bit unbearable if you don't have the stomach for that. But again, here's where you have to take, sort of take a step back and kind of recognize what the record's identity even is in the first place and appreciate how fitting the style is for what this album is doing, right? I mean, it's the album is obviously about maximalism, right? It is about it is about feeling everything super so intensely that it becomes completely physically and psychologically overwhelming. And I think taking a kind of more 
strictly traditional approach to lyricism in terms of black metal or in terms of like MBV-esque shoegaze would be a misstep. You need a style and you need a perspective that befits the very sort of bespoke and sort of hyper-modern style that this record inhabits, right? And so you get that with this particular perspective that the album speaks from, which is the perspective of someone who is quite comfortably middle to upper class like quite living a quite comfortable existence but just continuously melancholic for the satisfaction and the fullness that that existence doesn't provide you know it's this perspective in a story as old as time if even are a california band it's a california album through and through and that core yep. theme that the first two major pieces of the record dreamhouse and the title track explore is that sense of having objective comfort but feeling lonely but feeling empty but feeling hollow and only knowing to lust for things that are images and things that are equally hollow but thinking that they will help you that thinking they will give you something you know having lived and grown in such a shallow existence that you know nothing but shallowness to look for right and ultimately realizing and being torn apart by how little that gives you how unsatisfied you remain i mean it's not something that a lot of people are necessarily going to relate to but i mean it's the kind of thing that as a perspective that admittedly a lot of the music we talk about adopts as well it's just that deaf even takes it in a more extreme way yeah because i mean at, at its core it's literally like i hate my hometown and it's 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 a particular kind of angst that feels very teenage that feels very actually it feels very like 1920 you know what i mean it feels very like you're still kind of a teenager but you're also kind of being thrown loose into the world you have these sorts of comforts that you can fall back on you have parents that will provide for you ultimately at the end of the day but you have this lingering sense of guilt and weight and you get a sense of the source of that guilt and you get a sense of the transmission of that hollowness as the album goes on into songs like vertigo and picantry which we'll get to but to me one of the reasons why Dreamhouse is so iconic is that it just perfectly and potently and acutely expresses that sense of hollowness and that sense of longing in as good a way as it's ever been expressed in art. You know, the idea of getting lost in a dream of idealized wealth and beauty. And the music complements and expresses those feelings beautifully. I mean, if you like pay attention to the way that these pieces are composed, there is an emotional development through the way that these songs progress, through the way that the guitar parts change, through the way that these songs are built, that show you essentially the the journey that the narrator of this album is going through emotionally. You know, there's beautiful construction here from, from front to bottom. There's a, obviously as Dreamhouse comes in, you're, you're thrown into the weight of it. You're thrown into the heft of it. 20 seconds in with that just insane ascending, scraping upwards with those blast beats and screams. But you get a little, a little clean guitar part that comes in about two minutes and 40 seconds in the first clean guitar part in the album. That's kind of, at the forefront essentially and it's like a kind of teaser of the final melody at the end of the song you get these additional guitar overdubs that come into the track as george is singing about mutual love this fantasy of comfort and he uses the the analogy of putting on gloves to represent being loved or being desired essentially which is 
simultaneously a kind of cold and lifeless um, view of of being loved and being comforted and essentially kind of seeing it as analogous as just putting on another piece of fabric, right? Something you can wear, something that can kind of contain you and keep you warm. And there is this thing on this album about the, 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 the desire for warmth, you know, the desire for to kind of feel this fire inside of you and, and be kind of cleansed by it. It's an album that juxtaposes very cold feelings and some of its more dissonant moments with the sense of just like overwhelming warmth that is a California summer essentially, but also a cleansing by fire that the narrator seeks, right? I mean, the clean guitars on this and the the kind of lead melody guitars on this are so just radiant, just give you this massive sense of, of bathing and light that the obviously the album title evokes as well, that becomes all encompassing. And, you know, you could read it as analogous for things like, you know, drug use or or any kind of other petty escape um, from a reality but ultimately I like the idea that this narrator's ultimate fantasy is just being able to lay in the sun and not feel anything or feel only good things and feel them as intensely as the negativity and yeah and then you get the the finale of the song which comes in at 551 the 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 crushing weight of those almost static crunching baseline chords that are then given flight by those big melodic chimes that come in at 724 you know in those big melodic chimes that do, 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 like they come in exactly one minute after the first stop to chug during that final section though and i love when they stop the song to just chug for two seconds and, and make you feel like you've got the fucking wind knocked out of you it's an incredible song compositionally. Every single detail is so beautifully tuned to emphasize the hugeness of the emotions and the complex, tortured nature of this person's journey, essentially, as they try to find a hollow comfort in someone else. And those final lyrics, I'm dying, is it blissful? It's like a dream I want to dream, are a text message exchange. Uh, at least according to Georgia, there's a text message exchange between him and a friend as well, late night when they're both high as fuck and really sad. And it's one of these little things that like on paper looks so ridiculous and juvenile and stupid, but clearly meant something in that moment and is given the scale and size of that emotion musically that it felt like for the narrator, for that, for that person. So, you know, it's, it's real. And then you have the extended uh, epilogue of this irresistible, which is just one of the most beautiful little instrumental pieces I think I've ever heard in my life. Like it's such a a lovely little postpartum, like like continuation of one of the song's core cool melodic ideas, but like taken in a slightly different direction. And again, emphasizing that sort of like just comforting warmth, essentially, of being able to let go of your anxieties for one moment. I mean, it's this this was my I made the very foolhardy decision when I was much younger of making this song my alarm on my phone <laughs> because, and I had to stop doing that after a while because it was starting to create a negative association. But I was like, this shit's so I was going to say that would create something Pavlovian in me that would do irreparable damage to my psyche. Yeah. So I stopped that eventually. But, um, but because of that, I've probably heard this song maybe 2000 times. <laughs> Just on its own. I mean, what a beautiful piece of music. I just can't 
talk about the song without getting so fucking corny. It makes me want to vomit. It's it's what falling in love sounds like, which is the gayest shit I've ever said on this show. And believe me, <laughs> no small feat. And and look, you can't talk about this and describe this album in any meaningful way without getting like that because that's just the kind of record it is i mean you know if, if i were to read sit here and read all the lyrics out to me we would all be puking on the floor within minutes because they without the music without the context it's ridiculous but it's also it makes sense irresistible it, to it, me is the sound of comfort it's not euphoric in the way that the finale of dream house is but it's like when that euphoria kind of melds into a kind of haze of just carelessness of of letting yourself go essentially and and finding a kind of warmth and comfort in that to me it's making yourself vulnerable because it does continue the idea of being raised out of euphoria and again feeling and experiencing that warmth and it continues that idea but like this is some of the saddest sounding shit i've ever heard but like that's not only what the song is it, it complicates things it muddies the waters a bit and perfectly kind of prepares you for the album gradually kind of pulling the rug out from under you with this feeling it kind of subverts itself as it goes forward to sort of prepare you for you know sinking to the depths for it to ultimately rise you from the ashes at the end so it's a perfect kind of transitional moment in that it is compelling in and of itself when you isolate it but it also just kind of works structurally. And I think that this album has some of the best arguments for like transitional tracks or just like the idea of the instrumental interlude. They don't get better than the ones on Sunbather. I, I remember like, I'm not sure if these opinions still stand or anything, but when we reviewed Infinite Granite, which is an album that we all liked more than most people, you two in particular, but I still definitely dug more than the vast majority of people. But when we reviewed that, I remember at the end, Riley, you said that you thought that album was like the best constructed Death Heaven album. And I just remember that was a long recording session and I had to hold my tongue just to be like, yeah, except for the fact that Sunbathers uh, structured better. Because it is. I, I I, mean, like, you all might still agree with that statement, and that's valid, that's fine. Have you but considered opinion, you're wrong? Have you considered <laughs> eat shit? <laughs> well, like, and here's the thing. I'm glad you brought this up, because I wanted to use, like, let's just talk about the interludes as uh, one little piece of this discussion right yes. now. Because... And I've had, again, 10 years to think about this following Death Heaven, the way that so much of their music is about dynamics, so much of it is about, you know, contrasting the loud with the soft. How do you have these sections that, you know, build so much intense euphoria and, and, and complicated emotion? And how do you make them land really hard? You have to have juxtaposition, right? So Death Heaven always understood that at the nature of their album construction, there has to be these moments where you're allowed to breathe. And they've experimented with each record that they've made. I'm kind of discounting Roads to Judah, their debut, which is good, but a little bit of an outlier. But with this record and each record they've made since, they've kind of experimented with, okay, well, how do we explore this dynamic? This, How do we explore this need for 
juxtaposition how do we kind of structure our albums to have these moments and how do we make it make sense so with sunbather what they did was okay we have three interludes and we use them to separate the four main songs right we have it very discreet right we have the the pieces themselves and we have these core sort of interstitial moments that allow you the reprieve with new bermuda they kind of did away with that and they put the reprieve moments within the songs themselves sometimes as outros and sometimes as kind of intros even little bits of moments within the songs themselves ordinary corrupt human love they kind of melded the two you had interlude tracks but they were a little bit more fleshed out like the one with chelsea wolf and and they also had a lot more of those sort of pretty intro moments that are were more extended i mean i think in a lot of respects for people who aren't prepared for the heft of this album ordinary corrupt human love is maybe one of the best intros to deaf heaven you can get because it is so unquestionably that makes the the, the the more traditionally accessible rock side almost as equal in presence as the metal side and then infinite granite and doing away with the black metal stuff almost entirely it just made the need for dynamics less overt in the case of that album it was much more of a kind of singular flowing single piece of music so but but so yeah the 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 contrast and the dynamics i think are more obvious and the separation of these major pieces more clear on sunbather i think the interludes each work beautifully what i like about them is that each of the three interludes has a very different emotional tone and feel uh, and what it beautifully does as well to accentuate the structure of the album which to me is an album that starts off at its most euphoric and gradually sours into a place of depression self-destruction and ultimately self-loathing i mean it's a very downward spiraling album emotionally if you really look oh, at yeah. it like that and the interludes reflect that as well i mean irresistible is is that beautiful comfort that we talked about please remember which has a vocal feature from i don't know how to say it niche that the alsay guy uh, does the spoken word reading of um, unbearable lightness of being on this song and under this kind of very eerie sort of reversed uh, guitar sound that ends up kind of being corroded by noise and evaporating into a plaintive outro and then you have windows uh, at the very as a kind of like calm before the storm which is the most despondent of the three very godspeed you black emperor very kind of down oh, yeah sour and uh unpleasant right so real the the car is on fire and there is no driver shit i mean there's literally like a kind of spoken word uh recording of a drug deal right which feels yeah bbf3 off of slow riot uh godspeed sort of tone and the downward spiral is what i thought when that little part dropped i mean it's just like that's the the climactic second to third act transition where you hit the low point and you know you do some some bad shit and you are taken to the worst place imaginable yeah so that's kind of what the the interludes do structurally uh for the album is that they just make those musical sections more disparate more differentiated but also kind of give you a moment to reflect on where the tone of the album has moved to compared to where it was and i think they work in that way i don't particularly love please remember or windows i like them structurally they don't really detract from the experience of the album for me uh but i do think they're sort of somewhat less interesting um admittedly i do think windows just detracts from it just the, the slightest bit for length reasons especially because that 
you know, the the last three songs on the album are such a gauntlet unto themselves that I'm like, this could be, you know, I understand this purpose, but this doesn't need to be six minutes long. Yeah, I think that's definitely the yeah. example of the biggest way in which they would refine that need for transition with the next album. Um, let's take a step back now and talk about the title track, which honestly is my oh. favorite song on the album. Uh, that's the I've first had- one I heard. I've had different favorites over the years. Uh, first, it was Dreamhouse. Then it was Pecantry. One point, it, when I was being particularly edgy, it was Vertigo. And now it's Sunbather. And I I think this is my favorite because to me, this is the one I find most emotionally overwhelming. And it's partly to do with the lyrical content and the themes and the ideas. But it's also to do with how the core musical idea of what Deaf Heaven do that was kind of laid out in Dreamhouse is so much more emotionally murky and complicated and ultimately devastating in this song. Again, I do think that each of these four pieces successively gets darker and more morose and more hopeless as the album goes on. But there's something about this point where this the musical tone of it is torn between this hopefulness, this desire for triumph, and this kind of subsuming darkness that's bubbling underneath that makes this the most devastating song for me. The opening section of this, like just when the song comes in, it's some of the most cavernous sounding music I have ever heard. The soundscape in the intro of the song is just mammoth. It To me, it's always like made me feel like it sounds like warring gods staging a battle atop planets in a kind of celestial amphitheater, right? Like it's just vast and you feel the sense of weight to every single thing that's happening. But at the same time, the weight contrasted with the space, again, the blast beats being added in as the section goes on to kind of add the sense of, of gravity to the events that are happening here musically. Again, it's before any of the lyrics even come in. You have more specific narrative exploration of the ideas of Dreamhouse, of, of driving, of longing. You have kind of the most iconic, uh, well, I guess, opposed, apart from the outro to Dreamhouse, you have the most iconic lyrical passage on this album of, of George sort of driving through the kind of Beverly Hills or wherever it might be and kind of just gawping at the excess and the wealth and wishing he could kind of be a part of it, but only because, but only in the sense that he sees it as this idealized image that he wishes his life could be that simple he wishes that he could be as careless and carefree and as meaningless ultimately as some girl he doesn't know sunbathing sunbathing in the backyard and yeah and that sense of, of 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 tactility that the lyrics bring here gripping the wheel sweating against the leather watching the dogs twist through the wealthy garden you know, and this this romanticism that comes through, but it's a kind of toxic romanticism. It's a kind of unachievable, unattainable romanticism. You get the feeling he's kind of teasing himself by engaging in it. And the 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 intangibility of it, like the, the complete inaccessibility of that world to him, ultimately leaves him kind of receding into this kind of, again, very brusque poetry, this very over-the-top melodramatic, you know, sort of Tumblr core poetry of gazing into reflective eyes and crying against an ocean of light there's ways in which this song plays with structure that takes the core elements of Dreamhouse and, and moves them in a new direction like at 247 in the song you get the the drop to quiet with a sort of plaintive guitar part same as you did in Dreamhouse except much earlier in the song you'd expect 
358 on the ocean of light line you get this beautiful clean melody that's kind of similar structurally to what happens in Dreamhouse, but it's it leads into something that's much darker because the lust of this song the kind of desire the the, the vision of a utopia that george outlines that he kind of longs for gets darker than it does in dream house it becomes masochistic in certain lines when he talks about his back shivering for pressed granite nails and then fully self-loathing and he starts to evoke this very bloody and brutal imagery of of breaking bones down to yellow and crushing gums into blood and being kind of stroked by fingers with rings full of teeth I love the way that the emptiness of the longing in the song so quickly curdles into the self-loathing and the self-pity for even engaging in those thoughts to begin with. It's a really just emotionally devastating song. I like how the progression of this album kind of moves. It, it's with It's with a certain synergy. But it also does it in kind of deceptively simple ways. Like the thing I noticed about this on my most recent re-listen is that as this, you know, gets darker and darker and kind of plunges you further down to that downward spiral, lyrically, musically even, I would argue that pretty much each track manages to reflect the sort of difficult grinding darkness like especially on something like here because lyrically it's like you have all of these ideas that make you feel claustrophobic and and cluttered and like you know something is pressing into you making you feel like increasingly uncomfortable and that is accentuated by the presence of rhythm the accentuated presence of rhythm throughout these songs like this is where i feel like tracy's kind of circular fills on this just feel like they are almost as oppressive as any part of you know the wall of guitars on here like once you take notice of that fact it feels like it's coiling around you and it takes advantage of the space like that they're there are lots of albums and a lot of albums like this, you know, shoegaze black metal albums that like go more for the atmosphere, everything. And th there's an art to that. And I feel like the the fact that there's an art to that also means that this can often be executed very poorly. Like, I can't tell you how many shoegaze albums I've listened to where it's just like, yeah, this mix is just like totally flat. Like everything's the same. Everything's EQ'd the same. It, there's no sense of dynamics. There's no real texture. They've just sanded off everything in the name of like making a wide, big sound palette. And it just, it does nothing. Whereas Death Heaven know just how much texture to give all of their ideas to make you feel everything, but also to make it, feel enveloping or when they want to make it feel suffocating there's this so the, the song just curdles into this darkness towards its midsection but what i love about the way this resolves is that again it's not a song that completely capitulates to fully spiraling the thing that really makes it you know a fucking 12 out of 10 is the finale of this song which you're set up for this crushing you know hopelessness but there is a fucking defiance to the way this ends like there's a the rise of it the heft of it the, the reaching upwards and the melody and then the kind of falling back downwards 
and the lyrics as well. It's 5 a.m. My heart flourishes at each passing moment, always and forever. You know, that's not despondence. That's, you know, that that's a pleasant image. That's an idea. That's a, that's a, you know, that's a, a, an admittedly very melodramatic, you know, expression of hope and expression of, of willing yourself to move forward. And just the way that the guitar rises with it and then goes down into that just guttural, brutal place with always and forever, just it completely empties me out 100%, wholly and completely. And I'm grateful for the reprieve of Please Remember and then into Vertigo as well, which is the yeah. longest piece on the album and also begins with the lengthiest stretch of quote-unquote soft music. Uh, though the main chordal idea is quite sinister still in the first section of yeah. the song. Again, we're basically at a point of no return with this track, essentially, where the, I guess, prettiness and comfort of the outro of Please Remember is basically the last time on the whole record that you hear anything that I would describe with positive adjectives, you know? From Vertigo onwards, it's all a downhill slide. And while true metalheads might be waiting for the song to explode there's actually a lot that's happening that i find very beautiful and very interesting in this opening section there are these electric yeah. guitar leads in the first section of um of uh, vertigo that remind me so much of agalock like they have that kind of like siren-y sound God. that agalock's guitar leads have on ashes against the grain and obviously that's a fucking crack cocaine sound to me uh that just really line up so beautifully with the kind of portentous doomy feeling of the music i like the way that the, as the section goes on it actually slows down the tempo kind of slows down the, the the atmosphere opens up it gets a little bit more dramatic the whole thing kind of has the feel of a, like an operatic overture like a, like a, a kind of a section before you know the main event essentially where you're getting like a, a musical representation of some you know complex emotional battle that's going on the tone is tortured cold and claustrophobic once the heavy metal sections come in blast beats and those sections of the song are basically near constant. It's just brutal. Honestly, when this song gets going, it's it's upsetting to listen to. You get this expansion of the lyrical theme of the record as well, because Dreamhouse and Sunbather, they're both fundamentally songs about wanting to experience happiness in an unconstrained and straightforward and you know uncomplicated way, but but realizing how futile that is how much of a kind of dream that is how much of a kind of unrealistic expectation that is having that send you spiraling into depression and then vertigo in combination with picantry as well is kind of reflecting inward and looking at all the different ways that made you fucked up in the first place right there's a lot of themes in these songs of growing up broken uh, particularly in vertigo Lost in the patterns of youth and the ghost of your aches comes back to haunt you and the forging of change makes no difference. Memories fly through the mask of your life, shielding you from time. The years that burst the shell that you gained hunched over an apathetic grief. I mean, these, I would say as well, for as flowery and as quote unquote pretentious as the lyrics on this album can get at certain points, I would say these are some of the most compelling from a pure poetic standpoint. I find these lyrics to be just utterly breathtaking and beautiful. 
with a disregard for steps except the one taken back, perched up on a rope, crafted in smoke, a sword-wielding death that buried your hope, focusing on light through the blinds, a slave to reality under a monarch in the sky. It's, uh, yeah, if you're not feeling it at this point, you will be. You know, this is really where the album, it, it gets you in its fucking grip so quickly with that emotional dynamism of the first half of the record that euphoria tinged with that kind of terror and horror one of the things i love so much about uh, about this album and about what deaf heaven do is that they are one of the best bands i've ever encountered at musically realizing the feeling of the sublime and that's a great feeling that's a, a really really uh, interesting psychological and emotional concept the idea of of the sublime in terms of what that is and how it affects us ultimately being you know being confronted with something so all-encompassing so unknowable so completely beyond the scope of our comprehension that we feel this mixture of utter terror like complete horror but also attraction and awe and fascination and deaf heaven capture the complicated emotional tone of being witness to the sublime as well as any band i've ever come across and the way that 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 they lure you in with that feeling of the sublime with that feeling of the terror mixed with awe and then gradually just kind of pull you down into the depths of despair with the progression of the album is you know it's a brutal trick but it's done so well you can't really pick favorites on this album like so much more than any other album we've talked about it's just like isolating any part of it feels wrong so i won't say that vertigo is my favorite song but it does feel the most immersive it's the center of the album it's at like it's midway in that descent but i love what riley said about how this band captures the sublime how it captures the euphoric but I would also argue that the further down the spiral they go on this album, that inherently invites the idea that they could easily channel the dysphoric as well, which is why I would like to posit this song. I mean, here's the thing with this narrative and the way this album is written is that this is kind of like an underrated breakup album, sort of, but it's really more that just the narrative of the descent is more so specific to George, I'm sure, and very vivid in its depiction of that spiral. But at the same time, it's also general enough to sort of fit whatever kind of narrative that you may be feeling internally within yourself and kind of project it onto that. It's, it's really easy to find yourself in the broad strokes of this album. And Vertigo in particular has some lyrical passages that I find particularly evocative in terms of its relation to potentially body and gender dysphoria. I mean, think about it. Just for things like the years that birthed the shell that you gained hunched over in apathetic grief with a disregard for steps except the ones taken back. It's talking about the progress you make with yourself and how it only feels like you acknowledge regression that you acknowledge something that no matter how far along you get it only feels like you feel the negativity and it's projected it's anchored it's just 
beholden to that image of that shell, that idea of your projected self, the self that you see when you pull back. You are the ghost in the machine and you have to look at the machine. And th this really just kind of gets to the heart of feeling a, a, a disparate kind of ache that you don't feel like can be resolved. And that is just, I I can't tell you how many times I've listened to this album just when I was feeling like shit or when I was feeling particularly dysphoric or any kind of anything. And it doesn't necessarily make for a cathartic experience, but it externalizes the internal with a way that you just, you recognize, you get on that wavelength and you're like, oh my God, it feels like this music understands me. I completely agree. I mean, more than any other song on the album, this is about being stuck. It's about kind of being fixed in one place. Be the the kind of hope that you once felt with a kind of sense of escape that you once looked for is kind of just completely gone at this point. But you have neither upward nor downward to go. You're just kind of suspended in it. And I love the finale of the song as well. I mean, there's different emotional tones to each of the four big finales on this on this album. But this is one of the most crushing and one of the most sort of despondent to me. There's an almost sludgy quality to it, except, you know, with the tremolo guitars, you would never get in a sludge metal song. And just this lyrical pattern of, you know, lost in the patterns of youth where the windows shine brightly back at you. Like I, I love that little bait and switch, like the idea of of being lost in a kind of pleasant memory, perhaps, or at least lost in a kind of safe memory of a kind of beautiful view that ultimately turns into something that it's not a beautiful view. It's just a burning light that's kind of, you know, blinding you, essentially. And it's complicated, you know, it's hopeful in a certain sense, but it's tortured still. Then you get a really interesting thing that happens at the very end of the song, which is that the musical idea changes halfway through the finale, and it picks up into something that's more complicated. It's hopeful, but also still tortured. There's an uplift that happens here, and it's hard for me to interpret that. Maybe it's accepting a false sense of being saved by officially just shutting out the real world and shutting out your guilt or maybe it's a kind of comfort and a kind of calm and a kind of relief that comes from deciding to leave it all behind even you know and it's a particularly dark interpretation but yeah it's one of the most compositionally accomplished songs on the whole record so yeah it deserves all the love in the world and then you get pecan tree which this was always the one that got me the most, um, you know, as a teenager, this was the one that was the hardest to listen to, but also the one that I was most obsessed with for quite a long time, because the particular kind of pain that the song made me feel was addictive. Um, I still struggle to listen to it, to be honest, without getting like overwhelmed by emotion. Uh, it, it builds on that theme of a kind of broken, upbringing kind of growing up just un unable to kind of reconcile the heartbreak within yourself and it explores the roots of that not terribly specifically but but within the context of a father-son dynamic that suggests ideas of of wrestling with masculinity that i think certainly fit jake with your gender dysphoria interpretation as well i was going to say the same thing there's a 
it's not even necessarily that this is a song, you know, about here's how shitty my dad was and here's how he completely permanently fucked me up in these specific ways, but it is just recognizing the toxicity that you never chose, that you could never escape as a child that kind of ultimately infected you in some irrevocable way that you will forever be struggling with. And that's matched with musically, I mean, if Vertigo was was musically a really tortured song about being kind of mired in this sense of stuckness, then Picantry is like burning alive. It is like being on fire and and, and suffering and and being in pain. Like there's there's no numbness to this, like you could interpret in uh, Vertigo. It, it's just it's it's completely falling apart. Uh, one of the ways I love that this explores that father-son dynamic is the change in perspectives within the lyrics as well. Like ultimately the way it opens, carrying through with ideas of light and fire that carry through from previous tracks and then going into a little bit more detail in terms of evoking this particular perspective of trying to escape and leave behind your childhood, but then switching, you know, culminating essentially in the line uh, in the room full of family but couldn't find one in the hallways brightly lit but couldn't find myself and then there's a switch in the mid the midsection perspective wise which is also coincides with the most brutal and heavy part of the song where uh where george sings i lay drunk on the concrete on the day of your birth and celebration of all you were worth which is maybe the most upsetting lyric on the whole album for me for reasons i can't even get into and just the fucking gallop that uh is being laid down by daniel tracy over this section as well just you have i mean obviously the the distorted black metal guitar but with fused with that kind of hazy shoegaze aesthetic it's been all over this album is here but it's more dark and just dank and hopeless than it's ever been before until the song eventually just sort of evaporates into that soft midsection that ultimately sets up the power finish of this song and this album. The glimmering, gleaming, brutal chords and melodic tones that feel like the most poisoned version of the melodic tones that ended Dreamhouse. You know, you've completely, you've, you know, these songs, long songs structurally have kind of similar developments, but it's funny how you compare country to Dreamhouse and you just see how all of the, the triumph and hope of the form of Dreamhouse is just curdled into this toxic sludge just through the guitar tones that's you can get that completely just through the way the guitar tones have changed and also this monotonous pattern that they play in this final section you know an up and a down a lift but just very moderate small there's really it's just this constant you know hammering guitar line you get this great little expansion of the idea about 856 where it kind of goes up and down and kind of crests and explores a little bit more of a complicated emotional space but ultimately it just feels circular because you end up with that main guitar line punching through again and it almost is a final kind of like fuck you almost it's not a fuck you but like almost as a, a final kind of twist you get this 
key change that happens about 30 seconds from the end of the album that lifts it up and to this kind of like more uplifting place and it's like okay what does this mean but as soon as that happens you're getting a fade out and the idea is just being taken away from you it's like a cruel joke it brings me to tears but also at the same time fuck you for doing this to me psych that's the wrong melodic progression how dare they do the most beautiful key change in metal that I can maybe think of and fucking fade it out almost instantly. Like it's, it's, it's a, it's an amazing way to end the song, but I also kind of hate it. Oh yeah. I mean, deaf heaven have exclusively killed it with the closers. It almost feels like as great as the album was every step of the way up until this point, uh, this is when it and the band finally come into a sort of self-actualization, in a sense, just musically. I don't know, there's a level of ambition here that sort of eludes even the rest of the album. I have trouble talking about this album in general because it's so just like... Just, you've heard it, right? Like, you know what I mean. At, at some Did points, I... it's like so musically accomplished, and I'm not a musician, but like there are points where it's just like the the the, the level of musical bravura throughout this is so just awe inspiring that I just have to corp at it. Like the fucking about there's about one minute and twenty four seconds into the song, there's like a stuttering drum beat that comes in that that oh. does, and I'm just like, dude, what are you? it's amazing and it's like it's it feels like you know you're being fucking stabbed right and then it's like when he does that and then he starts doing this fucking blast beat on the kick drum at the same time like fucking a million beats per minute or whatever and it's like dude Gene we get it. your shit. fucking dick is 12 inches long maybe fucking put it away <laughs> like i'm not saying stop Please. i'm just saying fuck you yeah maybe like doing it save save some cooter for the rest of us i mean jesus christ i feel like this song you know maybe lyrically can also kind of be further contextualized through some songs on infinite granite particularly uh villain uh which is about dealing with an alcoholic family member which i feel like you could connect the dots between this mm. song and that one i lay perhaps... drunk on the concrete on the day of your birth Yes, precisely. And that, that creates a beautiful bit of narrative continuity with Death Heaven that I kind of want to accentuate as being like, Morgan's right, that there is a kind of sense of untethered ambition on this last song here that like, it feels like no matter what Death Heaven did next, there's no way they could eclipse this. That like, no matter how nuanced your reading of their music that followed there's just an inevitable like will anyone like let alone death heaven will anyone ever reach this height again i don't know i still like as somebody who listens to this kind of metal all the time i still don't necessarily think that sunbather has really been topped or the pecan tree in that respect but i will say that we are three unique presences in that the interesting thing about Sunbather, the way we kind of preceded this conversation, is talking about the two worlds that it inhabits, that of, you know, shoegaze and black metal. And the, the miracle of its success is that it kind of is antagonistic towards both. 
as I think we demonstrated in that the people who are more in line with shoegaze aren't going to get along with the harder edges that are still here. And the people who are more accustomed to a more serrating black metal experience are going to be like, Moho, where is my fucking lo-fi production? But like in that kind of haze that like in between those two camps in the center is a world of music that it caters to people like us who listen to both of these things and enjoy them in equal volumes and say, I don't give a shit about genre, give me something new. And that's exactly what Sunbather is. And that's exactly what Death Heaven are in that we're also unique in that I think that we, like our overwhelming love of Sunbather, I'm not sure where you two stand on it now, but like there's an argument to be made that like that we will make at least as fans of this band that there are still other records that are at least almost as good as this one. Like, I mean, we we were obviously defenders of Infinite Granite and something interesting that I like in exploring uh, other music content creators uh, is that of the content of one Mr. Critical Reactions. Uh, great dude, by the way. He did a theme for one of his weeks where he explored bands that underwent a significant sonic change throughout the years, throughout their development. And one of the bands he covered was Death Heaven. And the, the first song he covered was a song from Sunbather. And the second one he covered was one from Infinite Granite. And like the first thing he said when he was done listening to that song, and he's like, he's like an actual composer. So he knows things about music theory that we obviously can't verbalize or, or put into so many words is that he was just like, there's not a lot different here. He's like, they, they turned down the reverb, the reverb and certain elements of their earlier music aren't here, but all of it's still the same. And I'm not trying to like, come down on any type of person just because I, I feel like with a band this specific their appeal is inherently limited and death heaven have boldly i think chosen to not do sunbather 2 they they have moved to a distinct different place every time they've made a new album and that's why i love them even though technically speaking i have liked each album after sunbather a little bit less they're not an album. They're not a band that I think is on the decline at all. They're just exploring different possibilities. Like they're they're blending different things together, and they are they they could write out the success of Sunday. They they could just make a bunch of albums that sound exactly like this. And critically speaking, they would probably be more favored. They would probably have a fan base that is like a little bit more dedicated and less wishy-washy than they are just because, again, albums like Infinite Granite alienated people. Like, I don't really know many Death Heaven fans at all other than you guys that like that album. I, I mean, I've seen like lukewarm defenses, but it's like nobody. But that's the thing is that I feel like you can't count them out. Like, I'm, I'm less hot on that album than you two, but... I'm no less excited to see what Death Heaven do for as acclaimed as they have been and very indie blog centric as they uh, are oriented in the, in the sphere and the the places that kind of propped Sunbather up as a great moment in alternative music. They're probably a band that's destined to have a very underrated catalog of albums after this. Uh, I'm I'm no less excited to see what Death Heaven do next than I am a band like panopticon which i think have been you know shitting masterpieces for the last decade basically so you know 
one of the things that's true of Sunbather, I think really true of a lot of albums that kind of meet their moment and become defining of a particular sound or defining of a particular moment is that, you know, the context of the band's career, particularly if the album which it often is, tends to be earlier in their career, often is, you know, defined by the shadow of that record. This was, of course, the second Deaf Heaven record, not the first, but ultimately every record they've made since has felt like, to some degree, a reaction to it. I mean, New Bermuda is interesting because that record is the most similar to this of any of your other ones, I suppose, but it's like, it's simultaneously more heavy. That record has a much more black metal production style, but it also, like, has more violent shifts into embraces of kind of softer dream pop and that side of thing as well so it's kind of like taking the dynamics of this and making both ends of it more extreme and then ordinary corrupt human love is kind of like peering back some of the harsher edges and really kind of leaning into that dynamism in a more sort of moderated way and then infinite granite is bringing things more to get closer together and and evaporating that dynamism more and more um and it's just an interesting kind of a perfect arc just with those it's albums. An interesting way in which their careers developed, and it does put them in an interesting position because it, it becomes difficult for me to judge where they'll go next. But yeah, just to reflect as well, it's a record that still captivates to this day. It's a good thing, in my opinion, this is a, st- a record that people still argue over, even if it is universally, well, not universally, even if it is very, you know, the vast majority of people who've heard it do love it. It's still a record that inspires debates, discussions, arguments. There's still a band that pe- that captivate people. There's still a band that feel like a, a big part of the conversation when we talk about metal, even though hilariously they may no longer even be a metal band. They still <laughs> inspire these conversations. And, you know, the one thing that I want to shout out as well that I haven't already shouted out, and we've kind of alluded to this in the sense that the record has these hugely harsh elements as well, but it's met with a production style that's very refined, that's very hi-fi, that puts these things in a very sort of, like you know, IMAX size scale that ultimately is even more of a rejection of black metal purism. Uh, And that's thanks to producer Jack Shirley, who's like the band's Nigel Godrich to to like basically. He's a core part of the Deaf Heaven sound and as much as any of uh, George Clark or Kerry McCoy or Daniel Tracy are. I mean, he produced, I think, every record of theirs except for Infinite Granite, which he is still an engineer on. Um, And so, yeah, I wanted to give a special shout out to Jack Shirley because his style, the way in which he's able to begin, because we talked about this is the dynamics are extreme. You're throwing together aesthetics that should clash in a violent and ugly way, but don't. So it's really miraculous how well the band are able to put these things together. And a huge part of that, I think, is uh, Jack Shirley. So shout outs to him. But yeah, an album that means an awful lot to all of us. I didn't even get to get to this particular biographical detail. But the day I first heard this, just after the album came out, was the same day that I experienced my first ever breakup uh, as a teenager. And it was... It was a really heartbreaking one as well. Like we'd been going out for like 10 months and it was, it was brutal. And I, I just happened. That's like, oh yeah. The day my marriage ended is the day that I also tried heroin for the first time. Oh, oh, look at that. Well, yeah, it just happened to be this day because I had heard this record was great and I heard it was loud and I wanted to put it on and it's been tethered to my heart ever since as corny as that is this record is easily one of the five or so most influential on my life in terms of how influential a musical album can be this is a moment 
uh, for me and always always will be you know as long as i live it will be the the, the day i listened to sunbathe the day i heard this for the first time and had my world irrevocably expanded at the same day as my heart had been torn to shreds will always be a part of me and i think is a big huge part of why i connect so much to the overwhelmingly ridiculous melodrama of this album because that's just i relate to that very very deeply and very very closely and so you know it'll always be a part of me for that reason let us know what this album means to you in the comments below. Let us know what your relationship with this album is. If you've had it around for 10 years like me, or if you're newer to it, let us know where you fall on it. Let us know what you think in the comments below. If you enjoyed this video, please consider giving it a like and subscribe if you haven't already. Both those things help us out an awful lot. If you want to go above and beyond and support us directly for just $1 a month, you can become a member of the Jams and Tea family. Get your name on the title call of every video on this channel. Plus, if you want to recommend us some music to talk about in a Jams and Tea Now episode, your recommendation will go to the top of the pile. Until next time, though, folks, rock over London, rock on Chicago, copper tone, tan, don't burn. <laughs>